Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. This is Mark Thompson. Get woke. God bless you. Get woke. Get ready for impeachment. Welcome to another Make It Plain and Get Woke podcast. Glad you're listening. Glad you could join us. Please encourage others to listen and subscribe and download. I was honored to be asked to be a senior advisory board member to one of my alma mater's new institutions, the University of the District of Columbia's Institute for Politics, Policy, and History. The institute is chaired by the first black woman mayor of a major U.S. city. That would be Mayor Sharon Pratt in Washington, D.C. And she had us convene a panel, which I moderated recently, on democracy in peril. I've been telling everybody to look at the great hack. It really will change the way you think and the way you especially think about social media. But Democracy in Peril as a panel allowed us to delve more into voter disinformation as well as voter suppression and how the two are related. And so Make It Plain and Get Woke as a podcast is going to air that panel. We wanted to make this as available as broadly to the public as possible, democracy in peril. And the commentators, some of you will know well, who has been more outspoken on disinformation lately than Malcolm Nance, former intelligence officer. We also have diplomat Ambassador Daniel Freed with the Atlantic Council, the CEO of the League of Women Voters, Virginia Case, and also voting rights expert, Professor Gilda Daniels, 
of the University of Baltimore Law School. So this Make It Plain and Get Woke podcast on democracy and peril is part one. But this will be riveting information. If you've seen The Great Hack or not, this will be just as riveting. Either this is going to complement you seeing The Great Hack or it's going to inspire you to go look at The Great Hack, one or the other. The panel, Democracy in Peril, and Mayor Sharon Pratt will introduce yours truly and the panelists, Democracy in Peril. Okay, good evening, everyone. Uh, I am Sharon Pratt. I am the founding director of the Institute of Politics, Policy, and History. Uh, and we are happily uh, a part of the University of the District of Columbia. Just, uh, just to give you a sense of, our, of who we are, we were launched in January of this year by Mayor Bowser and President Ronald Mason. Uh, and our purpose is to uh, engage a new generation, get them involved in public policy, but also to rediscover the history of this very unique city and by so doing, the history, a significant slice of the history of our country, make it accessible and intriguing to contemporary folks. So to that end, every speaker series that we have, every individual series that we, uh, uh, event that we have, we always infuse the conversation with historical data points. So we did that in all of our events, and we shall, shall do so again tonight. Now, this is as timely a topic as you can imagine. It is, the, the topic is around uh, disinformation warfare and its implications and its threat, potential threat to our democracy. Now, this is not supposition on my part. This is something that is a part of even, I, I dare not mention it, the Mueller report, but also a great many individuals, a great many institutions that are, are, non, are agnostic in terms of their politics, but deeply concerned about the implications for our free, reliable, transparent elections. We have an outstanding panel that will talk about that tonight. The person who's going to lead it is our Mark Thompson. Uh, but just to give you a feel for the extraordinary individuals that we have, we have Malcolm Nance. Anytime you turn on cable television, you almost always see uh, Malcolm Nance. He's quite uh, a very much respected uh, comment commentator in the sphere of intelligence. Uh, we have Dr. Daniel Freed, who is one of uh, who's with the Atlantic. <laughs> He's a very respected diplomat. Uh, and has co-authored pieces, uh, 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 essays in this space, so very much respected. Then we have Virginia Case, who is the CEO of all of the League of Women Voters. That is, <laughs> and the League of Women Voters has, since its inception, been focused on voter participation, of civic engagement, I told her that was my first thing I did in politics was to work for the League of Women Voters. So we're so honored that she could join us tonight. And to put it in historical perspective, we have someone who's a voting rights expert, 
Uh, she worked in the Clinton administration and the Bush administration uh, and is the, was the voting rights specialist in the Civil Rights Division. She now is the lead litigator for the Advancement Project at the University of Baltimore Law School, Professor Gilda Daniels. And our moderator is someone who is a legend in his own time. <laughs> and a graduate of this university, an extraordinary political commentator, uh, a real uh, presence in all forms of media. Let me turn it over now to the Reverend Mark Thompson. <laughs> so uh, with that, I turn it over to you. All right, thank you so much. Good evening, everyone. Let's give uh, Mayor Pratt a round of applause for uh, having the vision to uh, bring this institute forward and you know those of you who have known about the university and support university over the years this is the type of thing that our state university which ultimately will be amen uh, our state university ought to be doing um, once we do become that 51st state <clears throat> we're here tonight to talk about democracy and democracy in peril I think it's also very appropriate for the mayor to convene this conversation because let's face it right now part of the reason our democracy is in peril part of the reason our democracy is under attack is because there are more diverse people and more diverse people running for office and winning office as a matter of fact and um, our mayor is one of the people who got that started she was the first woman elected to be mayor, black woman elected to be mayor of a major city. And we look around today how many women are being elected to public office and how many people feel threatened by that and feel the need uh, to do something about it. Um, having said that, um, I'm going to, and for that reason, I think there's a saying now, the future is female. Have you all heard that? <laughs> so that I'm true to that and stay on course and out of trouble. I'm gonna go in a different order than we had planned. I wanna hear from our women on the panel rather than go right to left, left to right uh, because they are here and hear from them because the fact of the matter is a lot of the targeting and the disinformation is targeted to women because uh, women do have the power today to decide elections who the president is going to be, who uh, state representatives and elected officials are going to be. And let's face it, these state legislatures and elections are as important as the presidency because the census is coming around. And so big decisions will be made in that regard. So we're going to hear from each panelist. And I would they're all going to make seven-minute opening statements. I'll ask one follow-up question, and then we'll go to the floor. We won't keep you here all night. We will share it throughout social media, and I ask each of you to then share it when you see it on social media, share it with others. That's the kind of positive information we need out on social media, not the disinformation, but this type of information, right? So as each panelist begins their seven minutes, please just say your name again for the record so that those listening and watching will remember, because a lot of times people watch, well, I, I didn't get the name. So please repeat your name as each of you goes, and we'll begin with Dr. Gilda Daniels, please. Good evening. I am Gilda Daniels. I'm a professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law. I am a former deputy chief in the Civil Rights Division voting section at the Department of Justice uh, during the uh, 
Clinton and Bush administrations. And as you can imagine, after you know Bush, I had to leave. And, and I'm happy I'm not in this administration uh, at this point, but I have many friends who are, who are still there. Uh, Mayor Pratt asked me to talk about the, the history of voter suppression. I'm happy to do that. And I'm honored to be on this panel, with the, on this esteemed panel. Uh, and the right reverend is allowing uh, women to go first. And so uh, thank you uh, very much. Uh, I am the daughter and granddaughter of Baptist preachers. So I, yes, yes, sir. And, uh, <laughs> and a daughter of the South. So I follow instructions, uh, as, as, and particularly when they come from the right reverend. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's talk about uh, voter suppression. So I've been uh, working in uh, the voting rights area for more than two decades. I actually, actually have a book that's coming out in January entitled Uncounted, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in the United States. That's what NYU Press. And it's and in that book, I talk about, uh, I provide a framework for understanding voter suppression, right? And we use firsthand accounts. I use the framework of my uh, almost 100-year-old grandmother who passed away earlier this year and, and document how these laws actually impact real people. For example, my grandmother w did not vote until she was 40 years old in 1960. 1965, right? So she was in her 40s when she voted for the first time. Hey, but the law says you can vote, right, when you're 18 or at that time at 21. But because of Jim Crow and and certainly being in Louisiana, that was not the case, right? So saying so, and 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 so we look at how the, the, the we have these cycles of voter suppression, right, and how we we can we can look back in order so that in, in a Sankofa type of way, right, we can look back in order that that we can look forward. And when we look back all the way back to the founding fathers, we see that we have a, a we, we, the, this country is operated from a premise of suppression, right? So we started with the founding fathers and all men are created equal and everyone, you know, and, and, and having the right to vote, but the right to vote was only for white men with property. And you didn't have to be a citizen. It could, you could, as long as you were a white man with property, you had the right to vote. And we, we, had, we had this paradox, right, of democracy where we say that we hold these truths to be self-evident. It's self-evident, right, that all men are created equal. But at the same time, we said that we, we will only count black men as three-fifths of a, of a person, right? So three, three out of five black men were counted, whereas five out of five white men were counted. So we started on this premise of suppression and created this, this system, this second-class citizenship, right? And so we have this you know, progress where we're creating this country and it's, everything's equal. However, we, we put into our, our documents, our founding documents, that we will treat these people as less than and we will limit their ability to, for representation. So we then moved to the Civil War, where we have the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And we have these uh, Civil War Amendments where, in slavery, we have equal protection under the laws. And we now have the right to vote. These black men now have the right to vote. And we enter this period of Reconstruction. So we have, now we have this period of great progress. And we enter this period of Reconstruction where um, we're registering to vote at astronomical numbers. Um, uh, black men are being... Uh, being elected to state, local, and federal levels in numbers that we have yet to see again. So this was an opportunity for us as a country to actually see what democracy could be, right, where it was inclusive, right? We know that women weren't allowed to vote, right, but, and, and, and there certainly were other who were in others who weren't allowed to vote, but you could you see it, you get a glimpse of how if you 
give the franchise freely and fairly that uh, there can be that change can be made. However, not so fast. We think it's free at last, not so fast, right? So we um, have this period of redemption where we're in this cycle. We had great progress, now re regress, where white supremacists were saying, okay, that's enough. Uh, we had federal protections. The, that the federal protections were removed. They removed the, the Union soldiers, and now white supremacists were able to use violence, right, death, um, in, in order to um, in order to uh, create a barrier to the ballot box. And they use uh, constitutional conventions to create things like poll taxes, literacy tests, grandfather clauses, uh, vouchers, and felon disenfranchisement, which is still around today, in order to um, take the percentage of registered voters from, in some places like Louisiana, where it was almost 90% of eligible voters to, like le to, to, to around 5%. Uh, in a very, very short period of time. So I can imagine that my... Um, great-great-grandparents who were slaves on the Oakland plantation in Louisiana, you know, uh, you know were, were excited when they were uh, emancipated, but then the violence and all that, uh, that surrounded it certainly pushed everyone back, and, and then we saw this period of regress, which took, it took almost 100 years. It took until the, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to, to create an, an, a, a, an environment where uh, African American voters could once again participate in the um, in the electoral process, and the Voting Rights Act was seen as and, and continues to be seen as one of the most important pieces of legislation um, that was ever um, enacted. Right, and it, it, for example, in Alabama, before the uh, Voting Rights Act, only about 19% of African Americans were registered to vote, and in less than 20 years, that number. Uh, I'm sorry, 19% uh, of African Americans, only about, um, and there were about 66% of um, white Americans. So you had like a 50% gap. In less than 20 years, that gap was almost closed, right? And now we're almost at parity in most states, right? So we're at parity in, in many of those states. Um, so we go from uh, the Voting Rights Act to modern day. Uh, voter suppression, where we again had progress, as, as Mitch McConnell told us on uh, last week, you got a black president, so you don't need reparations. Um, so we now have, you know, so we, we're good, right? Well, not so, again, free at last, not so fast, right? Uh, so <laughs> uh, we have, so we have, so we had periods where we had, we were exposed, right? We were exposed in 2000 with Bush v. Gore. And we were exposed, our, our, our electoral system was exposed with faulty machines and uh, butterfly ballots, um, with uh, felon disenfranchisement, removing people from the roles who, who were eligible voters. And we looked, um, we, it, it was a, certainly a debacle that, that, the, that the entire world saw. Uh, and so that was in 2000. And then we, we didn't learn. We got to um, 2000. Um, 6, 2008, 2010, right, where we, we had this Republican sweep, and the, after, this was after the election of Barack Obama, so they said, okay, you got Barack Obama, we're going to start turning the wheels of time back. Uh, you've got these restrictive uh, voter ID laws, uh, and now in, in, in 2016, you have proof of citizenship laws, uh, and you have felon disenfranchisement, where you have, you know, in, in 
uh, the founding fathers said three-fifths of a person, felon disenfranchisement in some states says you're one-fifth, right? So one out of five African-American men aren't eligible to vote in places, um, certainly in, pla in, in, in places uh, in the South, right? And so, you, so, so we're so, it was, we're maybe calling it something different now, but it's, it has the same effect Right, and and we and it's this, this the suppression is from the inside, right? So we have these these measures that are certainly from that are coming from the inside. We might have called it poll tax before; it's voter ID now, literacy test before. Now we have voter deception, uh, and 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 we have we, it's intimidation then; it's voter intimidation now. And where is the help? Where is the help coming from? We have equal opportunity suppressors, right? In this last election, we had Native Americans in Bismarck, North Dakota, who were told if they didn't have a street address, they couldn't. They couldn't vote. They don't have street addresses. They have post office boxes, right? And so we're so we allowed the, 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 the states to create this these systems whereby people are being disenfranchised, right? And it's and 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 tomorrow will mark the anniversary of um, the Shelby versus Shelby County, uh, Alabama versus Holder decision, which gutted one of the protections, main protections that we had, particularly in the South. Uh, and um, we're still trying to recover and still hoping that Congress will uh, act in a, in a way that will, um, will, will restore uh, some of the protections that we had in the past. All right. Thank you. Appreciate that. When, when Gilda said she was a daughter and granddaughter of preachers, I was worried about seven minutes. <laughs> we appreciate the presentation. Virginia Case, so the League of Women Voters, please. Um, so thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Um, it's great to have these history lessons and these reminders, so I'm really glad that you did it. Thanks for putting the ladies first. The League started in 1920. We're actually 99 years old, and I think it's important to note that um, our organization was born out of the suffrage movement, and I think it's also important to note that we recognize that the suffrage movement, in addition to the history that you told, um, did not really grant voting rights for all women. And so it's important to acknowledge that because of Jim, Jim Crow laws, um, white women benefited from the 19th Amendment. Um, and so I, I think that's an important thing to put in the room and make sure that um, even our organization, some of the people who were members of the suffrage movement were people who fought to make sure that white supremacy would reign in the South. Um, and so that's something that we as an organization also are trying to reconcile with, that how do we move forward from that and acknowledge that we have some ugliness to our foundation as well. Um, so, but as we move forward, what I will say is that we also have many wonderful members of our organization. Um, for example, members like um, Eleanor Roosevelt, um, Hillary Rodham Clinton, Shirley Chisholm. So we have seen this wonderful progress throughout the year. And we have many members of Congress now who are members of the League of Women Voters. And we're extraordinarily proud of the work that we are doing. Our mission at the League is to empower voters and defend democracy. And when you think about it, there's no other time like the present to be able to say we really need to achieve that mission. Um, we do it in a few different ways. Um, the first is, on the empowering voter side, voter registration, which we know is under attack in states like Tennessee, for example, where there's new law that's going to be enacted on October 1st that won't allow organizations like ours to be able to register voters. They'll only be able to come through their local secretary of state, motor vehicle, state sanctions, um, voter registration locations. And we're fighting against that. 
But these types of laws are popping up all over the place. And so as we try to register voters, this becomes an impediment to our ability to do that. Um, Second is voter education. We have a, uh, a website called vote411.org, and that is our main elections hub. We have five million voters who came just in this past midterm to find out where their polling locations were, find out information about the candidates. The thing that's different about ours, um, because we are a nonpartisan organization, and I'd like to add that doesn't mean not political. We do have opinions and positions. Um, lots of opinions and positions. When you have a lot of women running an organization, we absolutely have lots of opinions and positions. Um, but I will say that having five million voters be able to come and find out simple things like where they go to vote, something simple. You'd be surprised how many people just don't even know where their polling location is because polling locations, obviously, one of the voter suppression tactics that people use is moving po polling locations, in some cases outside of a city. So um, making sure that people are aware and also about the candidates. And so what we do that's different than most voter um, education sites is we actually contact every single candidate so that they can in, have the opportunity in their words to put the information about their platform and their positions on that site. So we're not just scrubbing the internet trying to find out information. We're actually asking candidates to hear in their own words. Um, and then the other thing that we do once we register, educate, is get out the vote. GOTV efforts um, are really, really important because we know that having a bunch of registered voters is great, but if people aren't actually getting to the polls and getting out there and casting their ballot and having their voices heard, um, then it means nothing. We've done it all for nothing. And then the other side, on our defending democracy side, and we do that through a, a few different ways, um, education and advocacy. You know, that going back to the education piece, especially around what we're going to be discussing this evening, um, you know, people get, there's a lot of disinformation out there. There's just a lot of bad information out there. And so we consider ourselves almost the good housekeeping seal of voter information. It's really a way for people to know that we're coming here, we're giving you information that you can trust, we're not coming with bias, we're just telling you what is. It simply is what exists. Um, with no spin on it, there you go, it's what it is. Um, we do a lot of advocacy work on specific issues. Um, and then we also do a considerable amount of lobbying. Like I said, nonpartisan doesn't mean not political. And we'll be talking a little bit about the For the People Act and the Honest Ads Act and things like that, which really allow us to meet with um, our representatives, not only at the national level, but at the state and local level, to make sure that they understand that there are solutions to some of the issues that we have. They're just responsible for acting on it. Um, and then obviously, they don't always listen to us, unfortunately. So um, we have over 300,000 members and supporters around the country. We have over 750 leagues um, in every state and in almost every congressional district. So one of the things that's really great is when they don't listen, we can activate and we can mobilize. And our members are everyone from 16 to 106 years old. So I can tell you, there. I mean, we had a case in Michigan where they had the voting right experts um, come in on gerrymandering, and it was this little old lady. They didn't know what to do with her. The, 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 the people, when they were cross-examining her, felt bad. Um, so we thought, find that intergenerational organizing and mobilizing our base is extraordinarily important. Everybody has a valuable contribution to make to this work. Um, and then I mentioned uh, litigation because because we are in all 50 states and be in almost every congressional district, one of the great things that we're able to do is be in litigation. So we're actually waiting this week. We have two cases being heard in front of the Supreme Court. One is on the census citizen citizenship question because we know that the census determines everything. 
everything in this country. And so we wanted to make sure that we were there and we were able to have a voice to defend and protect those who are not able to put a case forward for themselves. Um, and then around a gerrymandering case in North Carolina. And so, um, you know, as we'll talk more, I'm sure, about tactics and techniques that people are using these days. It used to be voter suppression was usually a racial ger gerrymander. But they realized that they were getting beat in the courts. So they figured out, well, if we can't gerrymander these states on race, partisan gerrymanders. And so that's a way that they've been able to get around the courts. And this is a coordinated effort. This is not a mistake. This is definitely a coordinated effort and coordinated with other um, suppression efforts. So the attack on women's reproductive rights is an example of this, um, where these are the, many of the same players who are making these decisions. And so we're fighting those battles on a day in and day out basis. And I think it's really important. And one of the things that we um, like to say at the League is that, um, you know, these are ordinary citizens. We're ordinary people who have been somehow capable of doing extraordinary things. Um, it doesn't take an expert, no offense to the experts in the room, but it means average citizens engaging in our democracy in a way that allows us to stand up and have our voices heard. And when they won't hear us, we just get louder because there are more and more and more of us engaging. So I'm very excited to be here and happy to answer any questions that you have because I think my seven minutes might be up. Thank you, Virginia. Thank you. Very fine presentation. One of the tactics that we know is being used, one of the most sophisticated ones today, is disinformation. One who's written about that and spoken about that is Ambassador Daniel Free. Thank you. Before coming on, Malcolm Nance and I were talking about our having spent our youth uh, the last days of the Cold War against the communist system in favor of democracy. And we did all right. We won. And we won because the people under the Soviet Union believed in us. And we believed in ourselves, flaws aside, we believed in our best selves and our ability to get past our worst selves. And we did okay. And it breaks my heart to see that the Russians are back. They want another round. They were in our elections in 2016, and they will be back. And the worst of it is they play on our weaknesses. They can come in because we let them. And it's not just us, right? They're all over Europe. Whatever problems, you, you're in Spain, and there's an issue with Catalonia wanting to secede. The Russians are there. Um, you're in Poland. There are some bad historical feelings with the Ukrainians. Yeah, the Russians are there, and their disinformation operations play both sides. They're angry Poles pretending to be angry Ukrainians. They play both sides, try to get both sides to react against each other. Well, of course they do it here. And they do it here. They didn't make it up. They didn't make it up. But they exploit it and they exaggerate it. They played, in the 2016 campaign, they played both sides of racial issues, white Latino issues, immigration issues. They would play both sides and they'd argue with each other. 
you know, pretend fights to heat up the atmosphere. We know they do this. They won't be the last. But the Russians are going to be sophisticated. Their techniques will change. And they're going to start blending in with domestic disinformation. They're going to push it along a little bit and encourage it. But they're going to feed it. The Soviets did that in the old days. But we let them in. Voter suppression? Oh, oh, sure. You bet they're going to do that. And they're going to encourage voter suppression groups in the United States, and they're going to amplify it. What's their purpose? Mistrust, anger. They want to bring out the worst. If it's a question of fighting the Russians and Russian disinformation, there are things we can do. The more profound challenge, though, is domestic disinformation. It's Americans. And it's Americans using, you know, in the 18th century it was pamphlets, in the 19th century it was daily newspapers and the telegraph. Then it was radio, hate, you know, radio in the hands of good people, in the hands of bad people. Now it's the internet. Fake sites giving out fake information. Some of it will be the Russians, but it breaks my heart to say this too. It will be us, our fellow Americans, lying to other Americans about things like polling stations, locations, qualifications. All right, now, now part, of the, part of my task is to come up with solutions and not just wring my hands over how lousy it is. But look, I want to I, I talk about the way you can deal with the problem. Okay, the good news is there are a lot of people in this country who understand that Russian disinformation is a problem, and that's a way to break into people's heads and start tackling the larger problem of disinformation generally. We can do that, we can do it, and we can do this in ways that are consistent with our best selves, not our worst selves, by which I mean we don't have to resort to censorship, we don't have to destroy freedom of expression, we can do this using the good techniques of exposure, transparency, integrity. Okay, what do I mean by that? I mean people should be getting ready right now. And I bet, I, I bet dollars to rubles, the League of Winter, Women Voters is already in this space. A lot of other groups doing it. Getting ready to identify and expose and publicize disinformation efforts whether they're foreign, because some will be, whether they're domestic. And that's going to require an enormous amount of organization. You don't snap your fingers and do it at the last minute. And please, don't hire an old man like me to do it. What you want is to get these 22-year-old 20, civil society activists who can spot a disinformation campaign. They can tell. But don't let them just shout into the wind. They have to be linked up with people who can publicize it. Okay, let me give you an example of how it really can work in the real world. All right, the Russians hacked into the campaign of the French president, liberal candidate for president, Macron. The last days of the campaign, they hacked into the computers, threw out a whole bunch of nasty emails. Okay just like with the Democrats, right? Just like in 2016, except this time, the French were ready. For one thing, the French love showing that they are smarter than the Americans, and so they got to prove that, in fact, they were. 
What they did was it got exposed in real time. European and American civil society activists had a huge exposure and they, they laid it out. And by the way, it turned out that Russian disinformation against the French liberal candidate was being spread by some American right-wing activists. Okay, just so, you know, just so you connect the dots, right? And they exposed it. And the French media, instead of reporting the stuff that was exposed about Macron, the big story was the Russians are messing around to hell with them. Not quite the language, but you get the general idea. Macron won. It was a successful example of social resistance through good organization and integration between all the different players. It worked. Now, next time around will not be so easy. The Russians are not going to use the same techniques. They will use new ones. And domestic American actors will use new techniques. It'll be deep fakes fake videos showing people saying things they never said. Or they will be better and better at mimicking official websites and fooling, blast emails, convincing people that their voting location is someplace where it isn't. Or that they have to bring a certain kind of ID. Or if they have any unpaid traffic tickets, they can be arrested. They will throw out this stuff, and it has to be combated in real time, which takes organization. And it takes people on their toes working. The good news is it can be done, okay? We don't have to be manipulated. We can rise above it and, 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 and have fun doing so. Because when you're pushing back, you're exposing them. The bad guys work together, okay? They do support each other. And you pull on that thread, you get a whole bunch of bad guys. And, and that... It's important to enjoy your work, I think. You, this, this is going to be the work of the 2020 campaign, but it's, the organization for it has to begin now, and it's got to be combined the tried and true, you know, League of Women Voters, credible, venerable organization, new organizations. They're, they're around town in Washington. Um, cutting edge, counter disinformation, you know, digital sleuths, digital Sherlocks who can detect this stuff. And then media, people in the media who are sophisticated enough, when this bad stuff comes out, they expose it and explain it. Bottom line is, we can do this. we got to start now. Thank you, Ambassador. Appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, and then, of course, as we all have seen, who's probably been one of the most uh, foremost public voices on this issue, he's written about it, his latest book. He's got another one coming out, too. Prolific uh, spokesperson and author on all of these matters, he and I are in constant communication. Just to show you the seriousness, I went, I spoke to the NAACP about a month ago about the targeting of African Americans on social media, and they convened a uh, telephone town hall for the m entire membership, the national membership of the NAACP last week, uh, and Malcolm Nance was on that call to let people know the seriousness of this and how they can prepare to confront it. So, Malcolm Nance. Okay, well, I'm Malcolm Nance, uh, and some of you might have seen me around somewhere. It's almost three years to, to the month. Actually, I can tell you the date. It's 26 July 2016. Um, something had been in my mind for, for a period of time, uh, for a few days, and I finally got my, my manager to, to have a discussion with MSNBC.
who had set up at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. They were actually at the Constitution Center. And it was beautiful backdrop. You have Independence Hall behind you, the Liberty Bell building behind you. It's incredible. So I had gone to my manager and I said, there is something wrong with this WikiLeaks dump of information that, is, that happened last Friday. And this is on a Monday. She said, well, what's wrong with it? I said, this has the feeling of a foreign intelligence operation. And so I gave it some more thought. She went to NBC. NBC thought about it. And then the next day, they said, OK, go on and tell, uh, you know, go on with whoever the host is. Tell them you need a couple of minutes to, to have this, this point that you want to bring up. So it was the first time that I met Joy Ann Reed. I mean, really been on set with her. She was on there before. And she was holding the fort during the second day of the Democratic National Convention in Independence Hall. And she had never been on camera with me. She had no idea what I was there to say. And so the conversation went like this. So I got sat down, got mic'd up, and this thing was in my head. And she said, Malcolm, I hear there's something you'd like to say to us. Because <laughs> she had no clue. And I said, yes, this WikiLeaks dump, this DNC hacking, the United States is under attack in a deep, broad-ranging information warfare, political warfare attack that is designed to split the Democratic Party in two and elect Donald Trump president. And you could just see the look on her face was like, you're who? <laughs> Aren't you the terrorism guy? Well, yes, I was the terrorism guy. But as you might know, that my background comes from the intelligence community. Started out as a cryptologist, that's code breaker. I speak foreign languages. But when I started, it was in the early 80s. And it was towards the end, the last decade of the Cold War. But in that last decade, our opponents, the Russians, right, the Soviet Union and their intelligence agency, the KGB, they were everywhere. They were everywhere that I operated. If I was doing Libya, there they were supporting Lib Muammar Gaddafi and Libyan intelligence. If I went to Italy, KGB officers and their surrogates were there. If we went to Malta, they were there. Corsica, any place that you could name, they had assets and resources. So I was always very finely attuned to this foreign intelligence agency. And unlike a lot of other people, I paid attention to the briefings in how they carried out their operations. So decades later, when this particular activity came up, I suddenly realized I had seen all this before. Because why would somebody commit Watergate at the speed of an electron that's hacking into computer programs of the Democratic National Committee. Well, they were conducting Watergate. But why would you do it? Unless, because in my world, the question why is the most utmost important question. Right? We can always determine who you are, what you're doing. But why you're doing it is called intelligence. And so I needed to know why. And when one quick glance, it was simple. They were going to throw the election one way or the other. But why would they throw the election? And to whom would be the beneficiary of this election? Well, it became very apparent on the first day of the Democratic National Committee. They were trying to split the Democratic Party in two by 
making the Bernie Sanders supporters angry by releasing emails that Debbie Washerman Schultz preferred Hillary Clinton, you know, these two best friends, of course she was going to support Hillary Clinton, but to make it seem nefarious. And so information that was relatively dull was taken out and weaponized. And the reason that I had seen this before is because I had done all of my studies back in the era of the Cold War. And I said, this is a very classic Russian intelligence operation. And now they are directly attacking the foundation of American democracy. And the only reason they would do this is if they thought they could get away with it. And only one person would authorize this, the former ex-KGB officer that now runs Russia, Vladimir Putin. But as time progressed, it became very clear this wasn't done just to split Hillary and Bernie. This was done to damage Hillary Clinton and to elect Donald Trump president. Now, all of this has come to pass. And the guys who were in my barber shop in Philadelphia were saying, well, Donald Trump says, what have we got to lose? And Hillary Clinton's evil. And Hillary Clinton's a B word. And Hillary Clinton is this and that. All throughout that campaign, I kept seeing these memes, or what we would call meta-narratives, these little frames around people. And it came out like this. Donald Trump, good, make America great. Hillary Clinton, evil. And the other one was, there's no difference between the two, lesser of the two evils. All of these themes were being pushed, as we would later find out, by a foreign intelligence agency that was also amplifying the exact same message from American citizens. They were carrying out activities like what we would call marionetting, which is where you would, from St. Petersburg, Russia, pretend to be an American citizen, get control of real people in the United States, have them believe you live there, and then organize a protest. And as the, uh, the ambassador said, a protest often on both sides, right? Pro-Clinton, anti-Trump, on the same street at the same time. This level of manipulation had never happened before in American history. Yes, the KGB, the NKVD, and all of the old Soviet intelligence agencies carried out disinformation operations in the past. As a matter of fact, the old story that the CIA created the AIDS, AIDS virus and gave it to Haitians and gays was developed by a Russian spy named Ladislav Bittman. And he wrote a whole book about how he had written foreign, foreign disinformation, and it would rarely make it into American society. But now, every keystroke that happens on the internet passes around this disinformation. What's happened since that time is our freedom of speech has been turned into a weapon system. A lot of people hear the word weaponized. This is the only context where it has damage and results that can kill you. In my world, we, we view information, or what we call propaganda products, as information cruise missiles. And we expect when they land to have an effect, a combat result. The, the Russians, who were the Soviets, they 
they believe the exact same thing. So before I get way out of hand, I want to read you something. Tucker Carlson attacked me a couple of months ago in his A block because everything that I said to you, everything that I've been saying on television for three years, he said I was crazy. And he said, where does he get this stuff? Well, I got it from a guy by the name of Valery Gerasimov, the commander of Russian forces. And he has a doctrine called the Gerasimov Doctrine, where he says the extensive employment of, of propaganda products enables the situation in a country to be destabilized from within in a matter of days. In this manner, indirect and asymmetric actions and methods of conducting hybrid wars enable the opposing side, that's you, to be deprived of its actual sovereignty without the state's territory being seized. When they hacked our mindset in the 2020 election, 40% of, of the people in this country no longer believe what we see in our own reality. They have deprived us of our own sovereignty. They technically invaded the country and took over the mindset of 40% of the people. They would rather believe Donald Trump and an ex-KGB officer than any person in this room. Nothing you can show them with your eyes, you know, your lying eyes. What did Donald Trump say? Don't believe it. Only believe what I say. This is the challenge to our democracy. We're in serious trouble, and I hope we can come up with some answers tonight. Um, all right. This concludes part one of Democracy in Peril, our panel that we're airing that uh, I had the honor of moderating at the Institute for Politics, Policy, and History at the University of the District of Columbia with former intelligence officer Malcolm Nance, Ambassador Daniel Freed, League of Women Voters, CEO of Virginia Case, and Professor Gilda Daniels of the University of Baltimore Law School. Disinformation, voter suppression, how the two are related and overlapping. And I hope you will share this conversation far and wide. But this is part one. Part two will be a part of the Make It Plain and Get Woke podcast. So stay tuned for that. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Also, subscribe to Make It Plain and Get Woke daily. Check out makeitplain.com to subscribe. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.